1: This is our second week of Acts. I'm sorry I had to miss last week. Um, But we are starting a course in systematic theology. And I think Jason got you going uh, very well. Um, I looked over the material that he shared with you. And uh, I'm excited to share with you the things that I've got in my heart tonight. Um, this This is a topic that's important to me. Uh, It's near and dear to my heart, and that is Christ's view of Scripture. Now, systematic theology is uh, a study of what the Bible says about uh, any topic that the Bible covers. Um, My preferred approach in teaching the Bible is to take a passage of Scripture and work through it and find out all that's in it. To take the Bible as it's written and exegetically just go through it and understand what it says. What systematic theology does instead is it goes across the 66 books of the Bible with a specific topic in mind and would gather up all that the Bible says about that topic. For example, the doctrine of God. What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about his attributes, about what he loves and what he hates, about his decrees, about his, his word, different other aspects of God? It would just go across the 66 books and draw out data or information about each of those. Thank you so much. Um, or, or what does the Bible say about the end of the world? Eschatology. We can go across and, and we know that we're going to get a lot of verses from b- the book of Revelation. We're going to get a lot from the book of Daniel perhaps or the, or the uh, little apocalypse in Matthew 24. But still, you're going to go across and everywhere that the, that the Bible is going to say something about the end of the world, that's what you're looking for. So that's the work of a systematic theologian. Basically, you're going topically through the Bible to find out Uh, What's there now most systematic theologies after an introductory chapter or two will start with the doctrine of Scripture? They'll start with Scripture even before they get to God now Why do you think that is why does the Bible in a logical order in a in a systematic theology come first? before we even get into the doctrine of God That's right. We're going to be making all kinds of statements about God. Now, what authority do we have? What right do we have to make those statements? Why is our vision of God uh, accurate or true and the Mormon vision or the the Buddhist vision or Hindu vision of God is not? What is our source of authority? And uh, we're going to start, therefore, with the doctrine of revelation. Um, And the doctrine of revelation is Uh, The basic concept in the Christian faith is that if God does not reveal Himself, we will not know Him. He is not intuitively obvious. We can't figure Him out on our own. He must reveal Himself to us, and so He has. Isn't that wonderful that God has chosen to open Himself up to us that we might know Him? And revelation generally uh, breaks into two different kinds. There's, There's general revelation, and then there's special revelation. General revelation is that which is available to anybody all the time. And what would that be? What would be an example of general revelation? All of creation. All of creation. The fact that the sun comes up, the fact that there's rain, that there are mountains, the fact that your own bodies are so incredibly put together. This is, exa- these are, this is evidence of the existence of God. And according to Romans chapter 1, uh, it proves his divine nature and his, uh, his invisible attributes can be seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So all over the world, people can see that there is a God and that he's mighty and powerful and wise and loving. But then there's special revelation. And God has chosen to give his special revelation uh, through a people, the Jews. He chose the people out, the Jewish nation out, and he has specially revealed himself to the, that people. And the, the, the number one way that he has revealed himself through the Jews is through the written word of God, the scriptures, through the prophets. God, the Holy Spirit, has spoken through the prophets, and they've been uniformly Jewish Now, I'm not saying that there have only been Jewish prophets, and certainly in the New Covenant we have a different uh, aspect, but God revealed Himself through the Jews. They were His chosen people, and He spoke words to them, and they wrote those words down. The written Word of God, and then finally the living Word of God, Jesus Christ Himself, was Jewish. And so through the Jewish people, God gives us a special revelation. And there are certain things we cannot know from general revelation. We simply cannot discern, for example, the Trinity, in general revelation. You can't discern that there is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by looking at a sunrise, can you? Or by looking at dewdrops on roses. Or I'm about to go into a song here, but you, you you can't discern it that way. He must tell you these things, and so He has. He has spoken through the prophets. Now, this is not new. We've talked about this before. I'm going to come at the issue of Scripture a little bit differently tonight. We're going to come at it through the mind of Jesus Christ. We're going to try to understand what Christ's attitude is towards Scripture. We're going to try to learn the doctrine of Scripture from the greatest teacher that's ever lived, and that is Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a lot of different ways we could come at it with Scripture, but this is what we're choosing to do tonight, the doctrine of Scripture. Now, if you look at the handout that I gave you, uh, St. Augustine in his uh, Confessions is having a discussion with himself. You know, Confessions is an interesting book, and he... um, Basically, is speaking to God the whole time. He he's talking to him, and he's saying that that God, you did this in my life, and you did that. And sometimes God will speak back. Uh, and, you know, you but you you spoke to me, and you said such and such. And so there's a little conversation going. It's a very intense book, and it's really an extended treatise on how he came to faith in Christ through all of his his the twists and turns of his life. At one point, he's starting to wrestle with the fact that in Genesis chapter one, God says eight times, you know, over and over. That, that God saw what he had made and saw that it was good. And it says that again and again. And he saw that it was good and he saw that it was good. And he's kind of, well, God, why did you say this so many times? You know, why did you tell me so many times that what you have made is good? It's kind of repetitive. You know, if I had edited it, I would have changed it, you know? And he says, God, you spoke to me. And at that point, basically, you put me in my place. And You said this, O man, that which my scripture says, I say. Now understand, this is just Augustine, this is his writing. We don't know that God truly spoke this to him, but that is biblical doctrine, isn't it? What Scripture says, BB Warfield rearranged it a little bit and said, What Scripture says, God says. And that is basic the basic bottom line. If you want to understand Christ's view of Scripture, it's this What Scripture says God says. We're going to come at it a little bit you know, different ways. First of all, we're going to talk about Christ as our example. Um, Second of all, we're going to look at Christ's attitude towards Scripture. We're going to look uh, down in detail uh, the idea of what Scripture says God says and how we can get that really from the teachings of Christ. We're going to talk about how Christ saw Scripture as absolutely authoritative, the absolute authority of Scripture. We're going to talk about Christ's view of the meticulous accuracy of Scripture with the so-called jots and tittles. Why does he mention jots and tittles? What are they? And uh, uh, what does it mean to him? And also the permanence, until heaven and earth disappear. He's going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how Christ took a literal and not a spiritualized view of Scripture, specifically in the person of Jonah. Very, very important. Jonah is seen to be a mythological figure to, to many, not to Jesus. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how Christ saw the Scriptures as essentially united. Now, let's stop for a minute and just say, what are we talking about here? What was the Scripture to Jesus? What are we referring to now? It's the Old Testament because that's what we had at that point. And so we had 39 books of the Old Testament. The Old Testament canon was complete in the time of Christ. The New Testament canon had not yet been written, but it would come. And I can extend out Jesus' teachings into the New Testament by his own statements because he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Well, where are his words written? In the New Testament, of course. So we'll get to that. but. From his point in redemptive history, looking back, we've got the Old Testament, and that's what he's referring to. But I think it's the same for all 66 books. We're going to talk about that, that the Scriptures united. He did not see them as 39 different books, 39 different authors, 39 different people giving different views of God and of other controversial topics. The Scriptures were essentially united. All right, we're going to talk about how the scriptures were sufficient or are sufficient for life and godliness, and we're going to talk about how Jesus saw, this is a little bit odd, but how Jesus saw the scriptures as Christ-centered. What do I mean by that? The scriptures were about him, according to Jesus. What an arrogant thing to say, but he said it. It'd be arrogant only if it's not true, and it is true because he is God, and so it makes sense that the scriptures are centered on Christ, and that's the way he saw it so that's Christ's attitude towards scripture we're going to get into each of those we're going to see how Christ used scripture we're going to see uh, the scope he he remarkably drew from wide-ranging aspects of scripture you almost can uh, you can't but you can get close to almost every book of the old testament that Jesus quoted or alluded to they're not all there but the, many many of them are and and just a wide he just f- freely quoted uh, from e- every book and every genre of scripture And in remarkable ways, we saw how Christ, we're going to see how Christ used scripture in temptation uh, with the devil uh, in conflict with his enemies, as he says over and over. Haven't you read? You know, this is one of the number one ways he would defend himself. Haven't you read that in the scripture it says such and such? And who was he talking to? Professional theologians did nothing but read the Bible. But he said, haven't you read? We're going to see it in his teaching, how he focused on on Scripture. We're going to see bottom line that Jesus had a mind and a life just saturated with Scriptures. You know, they said of John Wesley that his blood was Bibline. I don't know if that's a word, but he just bled Bible, you know, because he just saturated himself with the Bible. He was riding on horseback 20,000 miles or more on horseback, and he just did nothing but read the Bible all the time. Let me tell you something. If it could be said of John Wesley, it could be said infinitely more of Jesus. The Scripture dominated Jesus' life. Absolutely. And so he just would speak and Scripture would flow out even if he's not directly quoting. Some of his phraseologies would come from the prophets. He had a mind and life saturated with Scripture. Now, we're going to touch briefly... Um, We're not going to do any of these things. I don't know how we're going to get through all this. But anyway, uh, supposed oppositions to his Old Testament doctrine. In other words, there are seven generally that people find where Jesus would uproot or overthrow Old Testament authority. And we'll show that actually that's not what was going on at all. all. The Sabbath, for example, or sacrifice. um, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What did he mean by that? The cleansing of all foods where he declares all foods clean. Um, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you in the Sermon on the Mount. Is he overthrowing the Scripture there? And the, the topic of divorce. And, and then eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Right? Is he, is he getting rid of that? Is that obsolete now? It was in the Old Testament. Is he getting rid of that? And then the idea of hating your enemy. Those are seven ways that, that theologians have pointed out that Jesus t- uh, would minimize Scripture, Old Testament Scripture. We're going to see how Christ fulfilled Scripture. That's probably the number one thing about Jesus, is that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. He was a fulfillment of, of prophecy, and he was conscious of this, wasn't he? He was aware that he was fulfilling prophecy. Uh, you know, he, from the very beginning of his ministry, we'll see in Luke 4, he gets up and he reads something from Scripture and says, today, in your hearing, this Scripture is fulfilled. Now that's stunning. And if you, don't, if you don't understand how shocking, I mean, if you had been a Jew just living and waiting for the Messiah and you were there when he said that goosebumps would have come or rage one or the other, but that Jesus would get up there and say, Isaiah is fulfilled today in your hearing. That's amazing. Uh, and also that Jesus saw Scripture as Christ-centered. In John chapter 5, where he said to his opponents, he said, uh, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These Scriptures testify about me, and you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Again, an amazing statement. Jesus saw Scriptures as, if our, you know, he, as me-centered. They were focused on me. They testify about me, said Jesus. They were Christ-centered. And uh, we're going to see his post-resurrection instructions. He he took the Old Testament and just showed them everything that was written about himself in the Old Testament. And then finally, uh, Christ's submission to Scripture. I think it could be rightly said that Jesus would rather die than disobey Scripture. He really would. He told Peter to put away his sword. He said, because if we fight and if I send down the angels, how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So he will die rather than break scripture, rather than break prophecy. That's how he felt about it. And he quoted scripture to his accusers. It actually was a quotation of Daniel that got him killed. Uh, He he cited Daniel right in front of uh, the high priest. They they couldn't get it together. They couldn't get false witnesses who had enough of a story that they could get it done. And in effect, Jesus was saying, well, let me help you. You know, (laughs) I will quote scripture and apply it to myself. I will tell the truth and then you will kill me for blasphemy. But it was a quotation of Daniel that did it, and then breathing out Scripture right to the very end. That should be Matthew 27, I would think, uh, Matthew 27:46 and uh, Luke 23:46. And then finally, I'm going to say that Christ, the Living Word, this is not an optional doctrine for you. Okay, we can't get weak on Scripture. We can't get loose on it all right and why is that because let me tell you something we the southern Baptist Convention many Baptist churches have struggled on the doctrine of Scripture they've really wrestled with this and they've tried to elevate a Jesus who is you know all loving and very you know very very much like a liberal theologian I mean that's their view of Jesus you know they said of the German liberals that they looked down through the wells of time and at the bottom there was a pool of water and they saw their own face reflecting back up in other words they saw themselves that's who they saw in Jesus Um, And so what I'm saying to you is this is not an option. We cannot separate out the second person of the Trinity from the written Word. You can't do it. Let me ask you a question. What do you know about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, apart from the written Word? Tell me anything you know about Him. Somebody volunteer something you know about Him apart from the Bible. And the answer is zero. And it was made that way. And that's why John said in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He is the Word. And as a matter of fact, if you don't believe that he is God according to that word and you don't believe in his resurrection you have no life you're not you do not have eternal life and we're going to see that from John chapter 20 because you have seen me you have believed blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed okay well Jesus on what basis then right here written word on the basis of scripture they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead why does John tell us that in John 20 verse 9 because that's what we get the rest of us get the bible They were eyewitnesses. We get the Bible. And if we don't believe it, we'll go to hell. We have no eternal life if you don't believe this testimony about Jesus. That's how important this topic is. Okay? So that's an overview. Real fast. (laughs) And will we cover all of these things in depth? Oh, I sure hope so. You know, Einstein said if you get near the speed of light, time can go backwards or something like that. So maybe if we can get up there, we'll make time go backwards. All right? First of all, Christ our example. I want to give a modest proposal to all who call themselves Christians. It's written on your sheet there. We should have whatever convictions Christ had about the Scripture. Amen? If you're a Christian, you should have Jesus' attitude towards Scripture. Now, what was Jesus' attitude towards Scripture? We're going to get get to that. We'll we'll see. Okay. I think it's impossible to have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus did. Absolutely impossible. But I'm just saying, as as a Christian, you call yourself a Christian, let's just have Jesus' attitude towards Scripture. Now, I want to tell you something. I'm making an assumption tonight, and I'm not going to prove it. I'm not going to take any time proving it. I'm assuming that the gospel records give us an accurate record of Jesus' attitudes. I cannot prove that tonight. I'm not going to take time with it, okay? That's a big assumption. Some people will not say that 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 is true. But I'm saying, look, as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, could you have sat down and written those? Could it be that these are accurate, just like the Old Testament's accurate? Could it be that these give us an accurate recording of Jesus' attitudes? I think so. But that's the assumption I'm making, fair enough. But we don't know anything about Jesus, including his attitude towards Scripture, except from what? Scripture. So we have to start somewhere. We have to accept that this is a faithful account of Jesus' attitudes and his convictions. That's all. And that's my beginning point. It's okay. You accept circular arguments with a dictionary all the time. All you get in the dictionary is a big circular thing, don't you? One word a bunch of words used to define other words, and it's all just circular. But it works, doesn't it? Isn't that amazing? So we start somewhere and assume that it's true and we go on from there. And my starting point is that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Long, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are essentially truthful record of Jesus' convictions. I'm going to go beyond that and say they're a perfect record, but that's where I'm starting. Okay? Now, what is Christ's attitude towards Scripture? First of all, Jesus came to be our example. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, the Apostle Paul said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So it's, it's valid, it is right for us to have Jesus' attitude toward everything. Not just toward Scripture, but toward God, toward life and death, toward service, toward love. Any topic, we want to think the way Jesus did. And one of the beauties of being a Christian is you can do that. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, we have the mind of Christ. It's one of the greatest gifts that you ever got because, you know, it's out of the mind that you live your life. And when your mind is messed up and you think wrongly, you're going to live wrongly. And when God saves you, what does He do but give you the mind of Christ so you can think His thoughts after Him. You can think the way that He thinks about everything. And in heaven you will. Isn't that beautiful? In heaven, any disagreement between you and Jesus will be resolved. And by the way, He's not changing any. Okay? (laughs) It'll be you that changes. Okay? But uh, absolutely, He is our example. He is our pattern. And so we're going to think the way he does. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I think it's in verse 15, he says, he exhorts the people, he says, I want you to, that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Perfectly united in mind and thought. I've said this verse again and again to First Baptist Durham because I think that it's a faulty view of unity that says we sweep things under the rug where we disagree. Absolutely not. We want to be perfectly united in mind and thought, well, how's that? Think like Jesus does. What does he think about these things? That's all. And so we want to try to understand that. And Jesus said all divisions and errors and problems come from ignorance of Scripture and the power of God. He said to the Sadducees, he says, you're in error because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God because you don't know the Scriptures. And so I think we need to saturate our mind in the Scriptures. And as we do, we're going to see perfectly united in mind and thought. That's what we want, isn't it? And so Christ is our example. Let's think about the Bible then the way Jesus does. That's our first step. Well, then let's find out what it is. Well, part two, it says Christ's attitude towards Scripture. The idea is what Scripture says God says. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 19, if you would. I'll tell you what, you're going to have to move quickly through this. There's a lot of Matthew in here I've noticed, by the way. Matthew was the first Gospel I really worked hard on in Scripture memorization. And someone said, if you have a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail. And so, I don't know, again and again and again, I see Matthew verses. But you could do the same thing in Mark and Luke and John. Uh, I'm not even only... I'm just scratching the surface on this tonight. I think you'll sense that when we get through. And someone once said, you know, you can, you know, you can approach this idea of, of Christ's view towards Scripture and begin to refute a few of these things. But it's kind of like a mathematician thinking that they can statistically dodge an avalanche. You know, that if you're quick and nimble enough, you'll be able to, to avoid each rock and boulder that's flying towards you. Well, after a while, the avalanche of data shows you Christ's attitude towards Scripture. It's not a little. It's actually a lot. So it's a lot. I might actually urge you sometimes go through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just note the times that Jesus quotes Scripture. Write down what verse, what the Old Testament reference is, what He says. Just write it down in a notebook and you'll see what I'm talking about. That's all you need to do. And it's really not that hard because the references are right at the bottom. You almost just need to look page after page not even read the scriptures. Look at the bottom and the references will be there. Then look up and see if it's red in your red letter edition. We'll talk about that later. But um, at any rate, and say, oh, Jesus quoted it and then write it down in your book. There it is. All right, but let's look at Matthew 19. In this uh, Matthew 19, verse 1 through uh, 11 or 12 or so, he's dealing with the topic of divorce. Now, I'm not going to talk about divorce tonight, but instead I want to see how Jesus uses Scripture. One of the things you notice about Jesus is that any controversial or difficult topic, he always does the same thing. He reverts to Scripture every single time. Haven't you read? That's where he goes every time. And that immediately argues something that I'll get to later on, uh, but that is the sufficiency of Scripture, right? He doesn't need anything else. You know, he's not waiting for some other thing to come in, a book written by one of the leading scholars or or whatever. He's not referring to those things. Scripture is sufficient to answer all of these problems. And so this is a very tough topic because John the Baptist got himself killed over this one. He was over there in Herod's territory, and um, John the Baptist had preached that it was unlawful for him to have his wife because his wife actually belonged to his brother Philip. And he had taken her unlawfully. And John the Baptist just did what prophets do. He told the truth. And uh, the king did what unbelieving kings do. He killed him. You know, he cut off his head. And so Jesus' enemies sought to do the same thing to Jesus because now Jesus was in Herod's territory. He was on the other side of the Jordan. He was in Herod's territory. And he said, oh, we have a theological question for you. I know you like to answer theological questions. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Well, what are they trying to do? They're trying to get him killed. That's all. But Jesus looks right through it and answers the issue. Look at verse 4. What does he say? Haven't you read? I mean, you just stop there. That's it. He just immediately turns to Scripture. Haven't you read? Now, keep reading, though. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, I want you to notice something. The Creator does two things according to Jesus. What are the two things that the Creator does? I'm going to write the word Creator here across the top. According to Jesus, what two things does the Creator do? Made them male and female. All right, He makes them. I'm just going to... I'm out of room because I have no eraser, but anyway. Um, makes them, male and female. What else does He do? He does what? No. Look, read carefully. The Creator made them male and female and said. Okay, what does that tell you? And said. Huh? The Creator also makes a statement about them. Do you see that? And you get that out of the words and said. Now, there's a different way to interpret the and-said that the and-said refers to Jesus, but I don't think that that's true. So we'll just go on and, and assume that it just flows right through because Jesus is speaking in indirect discourse, and it's a better interpretation to go right through. The Creator, therefore, does two things. He makes them and makes a statement about them. Now, I have here, and I got this from Elizabeth Elliot's husband. They do this. An Old Testament... That's red-letter edition. Old Testament red-letter edition. <laughs> this is very valuable and rare. What would a red letter edition of the Old Testament be? See, here it is. Here's Leviticus. It's nothing but red. All right? I'm telling you what. Uh, Genesis, all black here, so we're later. This is in the historical accounts. There's no red there. So what would you put in red? In a, God What God directly says. And the Lord said unto Jacob, blah, blah, blah. All right, that's right. And there's some red there, chapter 18, you know, etc. It's hard because you're never quite sure what to put in red. There are some passages are a little tough. But if you look back, take your Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 2. And see what Jesus is quoting. Okay. Now, in my red letter Old Testament edition here, Genesis chapter two. Okay, if you look there, what's going to be in red? Well, look at verse sixteen. If you look at verse sixteen, for example, that's in red. Do you see why? The Lord God commanded the man, saying, "Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat." Verse seventeen is also red. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And the Lord God said, this is in red, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Okay, so that is red. There's no more red in the rest of the chapter. Okay, and that includes the statement here at the end. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's in black. Why? Because God didn't say it. It's just the narrative. It's just whatever whoever wrote Genesis. It's Moses. Right? But what's Jesus' attitude? What's Jesus' attitude? That's what I'm getting at. What is his attitude here? His attitude is it doesn't matter who wrote it. God said it. That's all. And he bases his doctrine of marriage on something that is written in just the narrative of Genesis 2. Now, I'm not saying get rid of your red letter editions. They're very useful, and I I think they are. I like them, but what I'm saying is the red letters and the black letters are of equal authority to Jesus. Do you see that? They're equally authoritative. What Paul wrote is equally authoritative to what Jesus says. They're identical authority because that's the doctrine of Scripture. What Scripture says, God says. The Creator makes the male and female. The Creator makes a statement about them. You see that. You're going to see it again. Look at uh, Matthew 22, verse uh, 31. This is where he deals with the Sadducees. Sadducees denied the resurrection. The Pharisees were an example of putting tradition over Scripture, right? The Pharisees put tradition, human traditions, over the written Word of God. The Sadducees put human reason over the Word of God. They denied angels. They denied resurrection. They denied all these things. You see what I'm saying? So they put human reason above the Word of God. Pharisees put tradition over the Word of God. Jesus put nothing over the Word of God. Nothing. And He deals with the, with the Pharisees in Matthew 15 and He deals with the Sadducees here in Matthew 22. And He says to them, you're in error because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. And this came after this bizarre case study in which a guy uh, has six, bro- seven brothers and they're all married to the same woman and they all die one after the other. It's a strange thing. You remember that story? I think one of the most courageous people in the Bible is the last brother who married this woman. I mean, that's just, isn't that astonishing? The courage. I mean, something's going on there. You know, if you were like in life insurance, you were saying, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure I'd sell a policy to her next husband because uh, they keep dying. But anyway, it's just a case study. I don't, it never really happened. And they're very bothered by this because they can't imagine one woman married to seven men or eight men But they could imagine Solomon the other way. I mean, it's just the way it is. So the whole thing's just rotten from top to bottom. But Jesus answers about the resurrection. Let's go right to the heart of the matter here. You want to know about resurrection? Look what he says. Now look at verse 31. First of all, verse 29. We've already seen this. You are in error. Boy, that's unkind. That's unloving. You are in error. That doesn't really flow too well in postmodern America, does it? Well, you have your views and I have my views. No, I mean, you're in error. What's another way of saying that? You're wrong. wrong. Okay, you're wrong. There is a resurrection, and so you're wrong. You are in error because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, here it is, verse 31. But about the resurrection from the dead, have you not read what God said to you? Now, you stop right there. That's the doctrine of Scripture. That's Jesus' doctrine of Scripture. Those little words to you are so vital. Never skip over those little words. Have you not read what God said to you and it says in the passage about the burning bush in Mark's Gospel? Okay, God is speaking to you. Have you not read what God said to you? How does God say that to you? Well, through the Word of God, through the Bible. That's the way He speaks to you. The Holy Spirit speaks to you when you read the Bible. Have you not read what God said, God said, past tense, to you today. <laughs> it's just, that's the doctrine of Scripture. He spoke a long time ago. He's still speaking today. The same word. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, how does this prove the resurrection? Well, God is not in the business of having relationships with dead people. Okay, He is presently, today, right now, the God of Abraham. He continues his friendship with Abraham. Abraham is called friend of God and that fr- friendship has continued. And so, therefore, he is not the God of the dead, He's the God of the living and Abraham still lives and so does Isaac and so does Jacob and so does Moses and all the others. They still live and so you're greatly mistaken. Now Jesus is hitting a level of scripture interpretation that they just they, they were not familiar with. He was reading through the words to the reality behind it that there is a living God who relates to people after they, they, they're dead and so therefore the Sadducees should have rejoiced and trembled. They should repent lest they go to hell, but there is life after death. Okay, So do you see what we're getting at? What Scripture says, God says. That's Jesus' basic attitude. All right. Secondly, Scripture has absolute authority. In John 10.35, we're going to come back to that passage uh, in, a, in a bit, but Jesus says the Scripture cannot be broken. And that's just, by the way, kind of a parenthetical statement He makes. Oh, and by the way, we all know the Scripture cannot be broken. What does that mean, the Scripture cannot be broken? can't contradict itself. Okay. It means it's absolutely truthful. It's authoritative. It's stronger than you are. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Someone once said that the scripture is an anvil that has destroyed many hammers. Many, many people have tried to destroy the scripture. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be broken. It's still going to be around long after we're dead. All men are like grass, And all they're glorious like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. It will still be here after we're dead and gone. And so the Scripture cannot be broken. It's authoritative. It stands over us and it judges us. It assesses us. It cannot be broken. Are not my words like a fire, said the Lord? His, His words are powerful. They're strong. And they cannot be broken. Authoritative. That's Jesus' attitude. There's also meticulous accuracy here. Look at Matthew five, verse seventeen through uh, seventeen and eighteen. This is the Sermon on the Mount. All right, huh? The chalk eraser? Really? All right. I don't think so. I don't want to get chalked on this board. That's when I don't wash my hands afterwards. Okay, I want you to understand jots and tittles, so I have to erase and write them out. Okay, um, look at Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus says there, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We'll talk about that later. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. That's jot and tittle in the KJV will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Okay, first of all, I want you to see, notice the meticulous accuracy. Okay. Secondly, the unbreakable permanence. Both of them come from the same verse. You see it. All right, what are we talking about when we talk about jots and tittle? Well, jot is really, I think, a yodh. And the yod is the smallest Hebrew letter. It looks like a little apostrophe. If you want to see what the Hebrew letters look like, all you have to do is go to Psalm 119, and they're spelled out. They're, they're, they're right there. So you've got the Aleph, the Beit, the Gimel, the Daleth. You can just see what they look like. The Yod looks like a little apostrophe. So just go to Psalm 119 and somewhere in there they'll get to Yod and you'll see the little thing. He's saying all the Yod's will still be there when heaven and earth disappear. They'll all still be there. And the least stroke of a pen, it's hard to know exactly what that means. But some people think it may be the difference between... uh, Hey, and a het like that. My handwriting is not the greatest, but th- there's only one difference between those two letters. There's a big difference in how you pronounce them. One of them is the simple sound like an H, and the other one is a sound like a like that. Okay. And what do you see that is the difference between the two letters? Yeah, I mean, if the pen goes up too far, you got yourself a instead of a, right? Okay. Now, h- why would that make a difference? Well, let's let's take for example this word. That is I oh, forgot the That is hallelujah. Okay? Yah is God's name. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. It begins with a h sound. Now, I'm not going to write this Okay? But if I were to extend this up connect this like that, we've got two L's. That means pollute or defile or curse. To defile something or whatever. Now, I won't say what the translation would be had I not erased God's name first, but the fact of the matter is a big difference between that and this, isn't there? The Jews are actually very accurate, careful people on letters, aren't they? <laughs> Have you noticed that? I mean, there's just a meticulousness to their, their care over the Word. And, and they, would, they would write, the, the scribes would write letter by letter, not word by word. They would copy letter by letter. And they would count from the back to the front and from the front to the back. And if it didn't meet at the halfway point, they'd throw it out and start over. They were very meticulous and accurate. Jesus was no less so. And He's saying it's all going to still be there. It's all going to still be there when heaven and earth disappear. That's the meticulous nature of Jesus. The meticulous nature of the Word of God. Absolute perfect. Smallest letter or least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is established. We've already talked about until heaven and earth disappear. Now, I know we're just talking Old Testament here, but if you were to look at Matthew 24, 36 or 37, something like that, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So he extends it to his own words. Well, where's the record of his own words? Well, it's the gospel writers, his, the apostles, were selected out to be with him, to be eyewitnesses, to hear his words, to be with him and observe his ministry. And the Holy Spirit later would bring back to mind all the things that he said and did. He said, in reference to the woman that, that, that uh, poured perfume all over him, um, he said, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How did he know that? Because the Gospels were going to get written and people would read about her. Centuries, millennia later, they'd read about her gift to Jesus. He knew that the Scriptures would be written about his own life. So I'm just folding it out to include now the New Testament as well. Old Testament, New Testament, all of it's permanent. It'll still be here after we're gone. Isn't that wonderful? Because these are the words that testify to your eternal life. And they're still here and they will never go away. And I praise God for that. Now, let's take uh, the idea of Jesus taking a literal, not a spiritualized view. Look at Matthew 12, 38 through 41. <clears throat> what do I mean by that? Well, how many of you have heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial? Okay. Scopes Monkey Trial is an amazing you know, display of modernism versus fundamentalism. Okay, And we lost that day, we fundamentalists. Okay, Why do I say we? Because I associate myself with Bible believers and not with urbane, witty, arrogant unbelievers. Okay, So it didn't look good for us that day because I, I think there was no one really to make a good case at that point, sadly. But Clarence Darrow, the ACLU lawyer, was there. And one of his favorite expressions was, one could as easily believe that a whale could swallow Jonah. He loved to do this. This was one of his favorite things. And why? Because the story of Jonah was a myth to him. Whales don't swallow people. Well, that's flat out untrue I come from a whaling area New Bedford and all that and it's actually happened a couple of times there's records of people being swallowed alive by whales and then coming back out again it's happened so so much for him Clarence Darrow he doesn't know whaling that's his problem okay but he also doesn't know the scriptures of the power of God Matthew 12 38 through 41 they come to Jesus asking for a sign then some Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him teacher we want to see a miraculous sign from you this is shocking really I mean, how many miracles do you need? Would they have believed if he did another miracle then at that point? They tried to kill Lazarus. I mean, how much more miracle do you want than somebody dead in the grave for four days, risen again? What did they try to do? They tried to kill him. So they would not have believed even if he had done another miracle. But they wanted to see a miraculous sign. And so Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at, this, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. All right, well, what's going on there? You cannot take that statement and say that Jesus believed that Jonah was mythological. It's impossible. You can't... Um, connect Jesus' physical resurrection to a mythological story and get anywhere with it. And he goes beyond it and actually gives a prophecy. He says they will rise from the dead at the judgment with this generation and they will condemn it because they got less preaching than these people are getting. And they repented. So there's no way you can take the story of Jonah, one of the most scoffed at and mocked so-called myths of the Old Testament Jesus said it was true literally true I heard one one speaker say you know the, the critics said it was a it was a whale of a tail and Jesus said it, no it's a tale of a whale <laughs> and that's true he he saw it as literally true and so also all of the stories noah and the ark Absolutely true. For as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. There's no way you can connect that to a mythological story. There was a worldwide flood then and it killed everybody but those on the ark. And so there will be judgment coming in the future and it will destroy everybody who's not trusted in me. That's how it is. And there's no, there's no um, mythological approach or interpretation uh, on Jesus' part. These were all historically accurate things. He took it all as historically accurate. Sodom and Gomorrah absolutely historically accurate to Jesus. He refers again and again to personages from the Old Testament, from Abel to Zechariah, as literally accurate people who truly lived. The Bible is also to Jesus united. Matthew 22, if you take a minute and look there, verses 35 through 40. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the verse, verse 40. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, what Jesus is saying there is that I can take the whole of the Old Testament, what we call the 39 books of the Old Testament, and unite them, all of the law and the prophets, together under these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He saw the Bible, the Old Testament, as essentially one. It's, it's got a united message. Nowadays, if you're in New Testament research or scholarship, whatever, and you were to go to that venerable institution quite near us and try to submit a paper in which you quoted across books of the Bible, from one book to the other, said they would mm, X you out immediately because you're making assumptions. All right. Each one of those writers had their own individual view of God. Each one had their own individual word to say about it. We're studying John for John's sake. The Johannine community. We're trying to understand what they wrote about God, you see. You can't go over to Peter or Paul and quote those. It doesn't work that way. Oh, yes, it does. There's a seamless integration to the Word of God in the mind of Jesus. You can do that as long as you're accurate, as long as you uh, understand the rules of interpretation, you understand the, the scriptures and the power of God, you can go seamlessly across books of the Bible. That's why systematic theology is even possible, folks, because we believe that all 66 books of the Bible contribute to the one united body of truth that we're learning. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad you can just go seamlessly across and not worry that this is Paul, but that's John, and the other's Jesus, and all that. They're essentially one. They're united. They're speaking with the same voice. And Jesus said, All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments integrated, united. Also, the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness. Look at Matthew chapter 4. <clears throat> We've seen this already in Christ, but uh, whenever there was controversy, whenever there was difficulty, whenever there was problem, Jesus would revert to Scripture, he would turn to the Bible. And it was sufficient to answer. These days, I fear that many of our evangelical pastors do not believe that the Bible alone is enough. We've also got to have other experts, psychologists or experts that are writing and helping us along. And unless we have them alongside, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to have healthy families or healthy financial lives or healthy business lives. We need the Bible plus something. Jesus didn't believe that at all. The Scripture sufficient life and godliness. Everything that we need is there. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And Jesus, uh, we'll get back to this in a moment, but Jesus' answers it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What that means is you can live on this. All right, Your body lives on bread. Your soul can feed on the word of God. And it's enough for you. It's sufficient for you. Just like the manna in the Old Testament. Old Covenant, the Old Testament time was enough for their nu- nutritive needs for 40 years. It was sufficient. They also had quail occasionally. Okay, That's another story. But the, the manna was sufficient. Nutritively, if that's a word. It was enough. This is enough for us. We don't need any more. The Bible is sufficient to answer the problems of your life. It's sufficient to answer the difficulties in your family relationships or in your, your, your financial life or your prayer life or your soul struggles with sin. Uh, all the things you're struggling with, the answers are here. It's sufficient. You don't need something else besides. Man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes. But every word, by the way. Did you notice that? You know, you have to actually work at it. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a body of doctrine that gets built up over years and years as you take in the word. And you know, it's a dynamic process because we're forgetful, aren't we? <laughs> We forget things, and so we have to keep taking in the word and keep bringing it in. And we live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the Bible was Christ-centered. We'll get to that more in a moment. All right. Now, how did Christ use Scripture? Well, the scope. If you look at Matthew twenty-three thirty-five, you getting familiar with Matthew at this point? I hope so. Around. But Matthew twenty-three thirty-five, Jesus was in Matthew twenty-three. It's the seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says it seven times. It's a devastating chapter. One of the saddest chapters in the Bible. Because if a prophet of God says to you one time, woe, you're in trouble. It's a message of condemnation from God. But if the Son of God, the veritable Word of God incarnate, stands in front of them and says seven times the number of perfection, completion, woe, it's over. He says, how will you escape being condemned to hell? That's what he said. Seven times. Woe to you. And at the end, he says about that generation he says you know you you build tombs for the prophets and you decorate the graves of the righteous and you say if we had lived in their time we would not have taken part with them in shedding their blood you know we would have treated them better than our ancestors did he said you're all the same you do the same thing you you honor those that went before but the prophets that come to you you kill them and he says and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah whom they murdered between the temple and the altar i tell you the truth all this blood all that blood will come on this generation well what is he doing there well it's really almost kind of handy in the english language that it goes from a to z you go from abel to zechariah he basically is with his arms reaching out to all of the old testament bible grouping it all together and making it literally true you see because you can't be held guilty for mythological people that never lived. You see what I'm saying? They really did live. And their blood will be on their heads. That's what he's saying. It's a devastating message, but we still see his view of Scripture. Abel was really a man who really lived. He was a martyr. His brother Cain killed him for the same reason that they wanted to kill Jesus, because his deeds were righteous. His brothers were wicked, and he felt guilty. And so he says it's all the same thing. From Abel to Zechariah, it's all the same thing, and it's all going to come down on your head. So there was a united aspect of Christ. He looked at it all. Now, how did Jesus deal with Scripture? Let's go back to Matthew 4 and look at His temptation. The devil tempted Him. And I think this is so beautiful. Have any of you managed to get through today without being tempted by the devil? (laughs) This is where we live. We're tempted. And we have a high priest who can... Relate to that. He also is tempted as we are and yet was without sin. And so he knows how to resist the devil. And what does he use to resist the devil? He's got the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And it's enough. It's sufficient for him. The devil comes to him and says, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus said, it is written, there it is, It stands written. It stands written. There's just a perfect, perfect tense. It has been, and it now stands written. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I've shared with some of you before. I've come to a new understanding of this verse within the last year. I used to look on it as a quiet time verse. What do I mean by that? Well, we need to read the Bible. Just like we have physical food, we need food for our souls. Is it that? Yes, it is. But actually, it's a little bit more than that. Jesus is here quoting from Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, I think it's in chapter, what is it, 8? Go back, take a minute and go back if you've got your Old Testament. Just look back at Deuteronomy 8, and you'll see what's going on here. It's a phenomenal thing, and it's an insight that I had recently into the way we are to live our Christian lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 8... Verse 1 and following. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. It's a matter of leadership. If you look in the book of Numbers, there would be a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, remember? And when the pillar moved, then Israel moved. And when the pillar stood, Israel stood. And if it was a day, they they camped for a day. If it was several years, they didn't move until the pillar moved, right? God led you all the way through the desert in his own herky-jerky fashion, sometimes a day, sometimes several months, sometimes several years. You never knew when that pillar was going to move. He led you to humble you. How does that kind of leadership humble you? How is that humbling for Israel? You don't get to decide when you move. That hits right at our sin nature, doesn't it? And you also don't get to decide what you eat. <laughs> that hits there too. He led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart to see whether you would obey His commands. What's the answer? Ooh. All right, we know what's in our heart. He humbled you, eight three, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. How does the hunger humble us? How does our empty tummies and their cyclical nature humble us? How does that humble us? It reveals Our needs. Our need for God. That's right. Because we're going to eat at His Word, aren't we? And it's still true. I know you just need it. Well, it's not true. I just go to Kroger. I have a Kroger card. You know, it just comes. if we had a drought for six years, you'd know, you would understand how you've been eating at the word of God all these years and never really knew it. But God humbles us by these empty tummies of ours. We're dependent on him. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon. God glorified in man's dependence. We are dependent on Him and we can't cut that tie, can we? But Israel knew it. They didn't move unless the pillar moved and they didn't eat except what God said to eat. He humbled them by causing them to hunger and feeding them with manna so that they would know that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now go back to Matthew 4 and I'll bring it home. Okay? What's going on here is that Jesus is fasting out in the desert. He's very much like Israel. He's not moving except that His Father tells Him where to move. And He's not eating until God says so. Do you see what I'm saying? Has God given the word yet that he would change stones into bread. Has that word come down yet? The answer is no. And so I'm not going to do it, devil, because the father has not told me to do it. And I will eat when he says so. I do not eat. I do not live by bread alone. I live by the word of God. Bread is merely an instrument to my life. I live by the word of God. You see how it works, what it means for your life? God leads you now by the word. He leads you by the Bible. You come to him hungry and say, I'm not going to move except that you tell me what to do. Now I'm not meaning that literally. There are some people that go and they won't put on a sock except that they feel led by God to put that sock on. I'm not talking about that, folks. There is a balance here. But I I still think we live far too independent of God. We don't seek his leadership. We don't ask his guidance. We don't live the way Jesus did. Did Jesus do anything except what the father told him to do? He only moved at the command of the father. That was the way he did his whole ministry. And look at the power that came from it. Incredible. So that's my new understanding. It's not just a quiet time verse. It's a whole posture where you're looking up at God's mouth and saying, tell me what to do and I'll do it. It's a whole different way of reading the Bible. You see what I'm saying? Oh, Einstein was wrong. So at any rate, I'm going at this. All right. How did Jesus deal with his enemies? I want to show you this. John chapter 10. And maybe we'll just have to continue this same next time. I don't know. Eh. Look at John 10. is an extraordinary passage of Scripture. In John chapter 10, Jesus says in, in verse 30, He says, I and the Father are one. All right? Ooh, that's incredible. I and the Father are one. What did the Jews do at that point when they heard Jesus say, I and the Father are one? Did they do... Yeah, they want to stone him. Did they fall down like Thomas and worship him? My Lord and my God? No, they picked up stones to stone him. Verse 31. Now, before we go on, by the way, somebody tell me your favorite psalm. What's, your, what's one of your favorite psalms? 139, Psalm 73. What would you say is the most famous psalm? 23rd. Okay. Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. Psalm 73. It's a struggle over over people that are wealthy, as I remember, and he's frustrated over it and the prosperity of the wicked, and and in the end he's satisfied with God. What would you say, Jim? Psalm fifty-one. I love Psalm fifty-one, which is a confession psalm. You know, these are famous psalms. How many of you have heard of Psalm eighty-two? You've heard of it, but I mean, is, is that like one of the top ten? I mean, Psalm eighty-two. Now. I want you to understand the dramatic moment here. The, the Jews have picked up stones to stone Jesus. They're about to kill him, and he reaches for Psalm 82. Psalm 82. I said you are gods. And it's a tough verse, too. It's really actually very hard to understand what he means. It's actually pretty hard to follow his train of thought here. He saves his life with Psalm 82. I mean, Jesus was super saturated in Scripture, you know what I'm saying? And he reaches for Psalm 82. Well, what do I mean? Well, look what it says. The Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father for which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy because you a mere man claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. What's the footnote? Psalm 82, verse 6. <laughs> I, have, I said you are gods. And, and by the way, he says, Is it not written in your what? In your law, and he quotes a psalm. That's, again, the essential unity of the Bible to Jesus. It's all law. It's all the word of God, you see. I said you were gods. Now, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, we all know that. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Now, it's interesting, his presupposition, the scripture cannot be broken, By the way, the devil has been launching broadside attacks on the Bible forever, right from the garden, right? Did God really say? Notice he doesn't do that with Jesus. He doesn't quibble. He actually tries to quote Scripture to Jesus. It's kind of like if you were going to do the the German liberal 19th century thing, devil, you should have done it to Jesus. But he didn't bother because it wouldn't work with Jesus. Jesus knew the authority of the Word of God and the Scripture cannot be broken, he says. Now, why then do you pick up stones when I say that I'm the Son of God? Now, you might say, what is Jesus' logic? What does he mean? I said you were God's. How does he use it? That's another time. We'll talk about that another time. It's a difficult one. But basically, he's picking up on the word Elohim and he works with it. Uh, We're going to stop. And next time, I'm going to talk more about this and get into the next topic of systematic theology. I guess more than anything, I want you to feel Jesus' high view of Scripture. Is that an understatement? Jesus' incredibly high view of Scripture. You can't have a higher view of Scripture. God speaks and it is. And you must believe this. You must accept the Word of God because if you don't have this, I don't know what truth you have. If you don't have the Word of God, what do you have to go on? And so therefore, let's just have a humble agreement that we at First Baptist Church will have Jesus' attitude towards Scripture. It's hard to live up to, though. He was willing to die. Put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. you think I cannot call on my Father? And He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels, Peter. But how then would the Scripture be fulfilled? that say it must happen in this way. That's a very high view of Scripture. I would rather die than disobey this Word. Let's see if we can live that way. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank You for the, the time that we've had to study tonight. Thank You for Your love for us. We thank You that You sent Your Son, the Word of God, the living Word of God. And we praise You, O Lord, for the things that He has taught us. Oh God, give us His mind. Make us think the way He does. Make us hate sin the way He did. Uh, make us passionate for Your glory the way that He was. Make, make us like Him who would rather starve than eat out of the will of God. Oh God, I pray, make us different than we are. We're so independent. Oh Lord, I pray that we would follow You in Your complete submission to and, and reverence for the Word of God. We thank You, oh Lord, that Your own words cannot be broken either. We thank You that those words speak life to us. We pray, O Lord, that we would follow those words, that that we would understand that in believing you, we have eternal life. I thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters, and I pray that you would be with us as we go on from here to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org.